0: So Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman could be considered one of the greatest and most influential Jewish scholars and leaders in Jewish history. Jews commonly referred to him him by the acronym Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, stands for the acronym Ram Ban, with an N at the end, Ram Ban. Now it's very similar to another very great Jewish leader, known in English as Maimonides, um, Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon, who, know, who is known as the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe Ben Maimon. This is Rabbi Moshe Ben Nachman. Two different individuals. Um, they lived um, uh, they, they lived about a century apart, a little bit less than a century apart from each other in different places. Um, but they did uh, but their names are similar. In order to differentiate the way Jews have traditionally done it is we call the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides, we put the stress on the beginning of the word. The Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, we put the stress at the end of the word, Ramban. So that's how we differentiate. It's easy to note the difference. Um, In Latin, he is called like Maimonides. He also gets himself a special Latin name, um, Nachmanides son of Nachman, and that's Latin for son of Nachman, just like Rambam is Maimonides, son of Maimon, Nachmanides is son of Nachman. Regardless, we'll call him Ramban, or Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, because that's the way he's known to Jews. He was born around 1194 in the town of Girona in Aragon, which is northern Spain. Now, at this time... Most Jews lived in Western Europe, in Christian Western Europe. And this was really the golden age for Jews in Christian Spain, and really one of the best times for Jews in Christian Western Europe. Jews had flourished in Spain. Jews had come to Spain, um, had already lived in Spain in Roman times, um, very large numbers of Jews came to Spain after the Muslim conquest in the late 700s. But Jews came in particularly large numbers in the 900s and 1000s um, with persecution in the largest Jewish community in the world in what today would be Iraq or what we call Babylon. Um, there was a lot of persecution then, and so many Jews moved to North Africa to Spain and other places. So there was a very, very large, flourishing Jewish community in the 900s, ten hundreds, or the 10th century, 11th century. There was a very, very large Jewish community. In the mid-12th, and Cordova, of course, was the capital of um, Muslim Spain. It was a massive metropolitan city um, with um, universities and scholarship and artists. Um, and uh, really the center, one of the great world centers at the time. In the mid1200s, there was a fanatical group sorry, in the mid 1100s, um, there was a fanatical group of Muslims called the al-mohis. Um, most Muslims, by the way, throughout history did not tend to be fanatical, despite what you may see today, and here today, most Muslims in history were actually fairly tolerant. Um, We did a class some time ago about Islam and Judaism, um, but just for the record, and I've mentioned this before, Muslim countries had large Jewish and Christian populations. Um, Christian countries almost never had non-Christians. They did have Jews, but did not have any Muslims almost, because of persecution. So Muslim countries tend to be very tolerant. Um, The al were the exception. These were a group of radical Islamists um, one of the few in all of Islamic history, similar to maybe ISIS today, um, radical Islamists, and they took control of Morocco first. They spread across much of North Africa, and in the mid 1200s, in the mid 1100s, they captured southern Spain, including the city of Cordoba, a big metropolitan center, um, a great um, center of learning of art, of scholarship, with universities, uh, with great scholars, great writers, um, and they basically destroyed the city entirely. Um, they destroyed much of Muslim Spain in the, in, in the course of that, um, really leading to what eventually Spain would be captured in the Reconquista, where it would be recaptured by the Christians, but this was after the fall, the Muslims destroyed themselves at first, but Jews were all forced to accept Islam or be killed, and so almost all the Jews of Muslim Spain moved northward towards Christian Spain, where there hadn't really been large Jewish communities at the time, Um, and they moved in very, very large numbers, very abruptly, to northern Christian Spain, the kingdoms of Aragon, Castile, and um, Portugal, um, were in the northern part of Spain, and they weren't affected by the Almohads. The Christians at first welcomed the Jews. They were mostly artisans, um, financiers. Uh, they had many of many. There were many wealthy Jews. Um, knew a lot about international finance, and so they were knew a lot about astronomy, um, navigation. Um, engineering, and they had many great skills, and so the Christians welcomed them and gave them great a lot of rights within Spain. They didn't have the same rights they had in Islamic, um, in, in, in the Muslim lands, but they were given significant rights, and they really flourished then in northern Spain. So this is the period that the Ramban was born in 1194 in, in Girona in Aragon, which is right near Barcelona today. Um, It was near Barcelona then. Barcelona was then the capital of Aragon. Now, this was also a time when Jews in Europe um, fared fairly well, fairly okay. Not great. There was still always persecution in Christian Europe, but they were okay. Um, This was after the period of the Crusaders where there had been endless pogroms. It was before another period of pogroms that would start um, in the 1300s, but the 1200s was actually a fairly okay period for the Jewish people. Um, the Jews lived in Christian northern Spain. There was also a very, very large and thriving Jewish community in an area called Provence. Provence was its own country um, that was in southern France, what today is called French Riviera. Riviera um, and so southern France, and there were many, many large thriving Jewish communities in Provence, what today is the French Riviera. It was its own country, they had their own language, um, it was its own kingdom. Jews at the time were also thriving in northern France, that's where Rashi had lived. Um, France at the time extended into what today would be Germany, Um, so much of western Germany today was then part of France. Um, Jews were thriving over there um, in, um, there were many major Jewish cities over there, and Jews were living in ghettos and still had very lot of limits, but they still were living, they were all interconnected, and there was essentially direct connection between, um, the. there wasn't much war in Europe at the time, it was a fairly peaceful period, um, and so Jews thrived northern Spain, southern France, northern France, um, they were all interconnected, um, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, movement back and forth among Jews in these various places. All that's going to end soon. Provence would be captured in the late 1200s. And is captured by France. France in the early 1300s expels all its Jews. Um, Spain in the early 1300s begins a period of persecution of Jews. Germany as well. Um, there's this whole area of all of modern day France where Jews are forbidden to live, and so that kind of piece of West Jew- Jewish life, peaceful peaceful West life of Western Europe, Jews in Western Europe. That comes to an end in the early 1300s. But the Ramban lived in a, this fairly peaceful time. So, Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, is born in Girona and spends almost his entire life in Girona near Barcelona. He came from a very prominent Jewish family. He was a great great grandson of Rabino Yitzchak ben Reuven of Barcelona. Um, who had been one of the leading Jewish rabbis in Spain in the um, 1000s, And um, he was also, Ramban had a very had a first cousin who also later became a great sage, Rabbeinu Yonah, who later moves to Provence, southern France, and becomes a great Jewish leader over there. Now, when, as a young man, the Ramban went to the great yeshiva, of Rabbi Yehuda Bar Yakar in Barcelona. it was one of the greatest yeshivas of its day, and he considered Rabbi Yehuda Bar Yakar to be his main primary teacher. Now, in those days different regions had their own yeshivas, different regions in Europe and the Middle East had their own yeshivas, and there were various schools of study in the various yeshivas. And so um, Rabbi Yehuda Bar-Yakar, although he was a rabbi in Barcelona and had a great yeshiva in Spain, probably the largest yeshiva of his day in Spain, he actually himself had studied in the yeshivas known as the Tosafos in northern France. The Tosafos in northern France were very famous for their analytical system of studying Talmud. And so although the yeshiva was in Spain, they employed the system of the the school of the Tosafos, or the analytical system, French system of study in that yeshiva. And that system of study really influences uh, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, who in his writings seems to have bridged or have created a mixture of The French school of study, the provincial school of study and the Spanish school of study each were kind of different styles and he merges them all together since he studied in yeshiva where the French school was predominant Um, and he also had teachers from the provincial school and so he really took it all in. Um, As a young man at 16 years old, he already begins to publish his first work, his first commentary on the Talmud, which is then widely acclaimed as a very young man, and he gains recognition across Spain as a very, very great scholar with these amazing books that he's published, and he's still a teenager. So he later, he spends a number of years, we don't know how many, studying in Barcelona, and then later moves back to Girona, where he becomes the rabbi of Girona, and he builds his own Yeshiva, which becomes as one of the most prominent scholars of his day. His yeshiva, his school became um, the greatest yesh- one of the greatest yeshivas of his day so now within Jewish knowledge, there are many different Jewish, there are many different sections of Judaism of Torah knowledge, and often Jewish scholars are focused on a particular part of Torah scholarship, whether it's Talmudic study, the Talmud being the most important work in Judaism, whether it's halacha or Jewish law, whether it is um, scriptural study, understanding scripture, whether it's what we call drash um, or um, inspirational lessons, um, being able to inspire people, or um, the mystical part. The Ramban stands unique among Jewish scholars for his time in his wealth and breadth of his knowledge. He wrote books and taught in every single part of Jewish study. He was one of the greatest Talmudic scholars of his time, maybe of all times. He was also a great halachic expert, a great Jewish legal expert in Jewish law. they were wrote they, he we have Um, letters written to him, they would ask him questions from across Europe um, in Jewish law, and we have his lengthy um, scholarly answers that he responded to rabbis across Europe. He also wrote commentary on the Talmud, he also wrote on Jewish philosophy, and he also wrote, um, he was also considered a great Kabbalist, um, probably the most well-known Kabbalist of his day. He was not only fluent in all areas of Jewish knowledge, he was also fluent in secular knowledge of his day. He was very well versed in the philosophy of his day. Um, the Arabic world, um, which had transferred now to northern Spain, um, was a center um, of philosophy, um, continuing on in the tradition of Greek philosophers. Um, he was an expert in Greek philosophy, in Arabic philosophy. He spoke not only fluent Hebrew and Ara- and of course Spanish which would have been the language that they spoke in Aragon at the time but he also spoke fluent Hebrew and Aramaic which is required for any student of the Talmud or any Jewish student but he also seems to have spoken fluent Greek and Arabic which were the languages to study works in their original at the time um, in their original source he also like many scholars of his day had studied medicine which was considered kind of normal for any great scholar. Um, he studied medicine and seems to have practiced as a doctor as well um, and was really familiar with astronomy and with all the various sciences of his day. So um, what they would at the time call a, later call a Renaissance scholar, um, kind of li- li- knew all the knowledge that there was to know at the time. So the Ramban's great knowledge comes across really in his many, many works, the many, many books that he wrote. About 150 years before the Ramban, there was a great sage called Rav Yitzhak Alfasi from Fez in Morocco. He was known by the acronym Yitzchak Yitzhak Alfasi, by the acronym RIF. Now, he wrote a book of halachot, of laws, known as Hilchot HaRif, the Laws of the Rif. And what he did is essentially he collected all of the laws found in the Talmud. The Talmud is a discussion of the laws. So it's hard to filter out the laws itself. He found all of the laws in the Talmud and put together a book just of all the laws found in the Talmud. And for centuries after, it was the most prominent and one of the most important books of Jewish law. Now, he wrote this book, Hilchot Harif, on most of the books of the Talmud. There are 37 books of the Talmud. But he missed a few. So the Ramban, as a young man, filled in the books that he missed, writing in his style, in the style of Rav Yitzchak Kalfasi, writing the same type of book, that, kind of the same style, and wrote a book, wrote it on two books of the Talmud, Bechorot and the Darim, um, wrote the books of the wrote his own halachot, his own book of law based on the books of the Talmud. There were also two great scholars the, in a little before the Ramban, um, both from Provence, from um, southern France, who had disagreed with many of the conclusions, the halachic Jewish legal conclusions of Rav Yitzchak Alfasi in his famous work of halachot which was one of the most important works of the day. And they both wrote their own books, challenging many of the laws um, written by Rav Yitzhak al-Fasi in the Rif. So the Ramban, Rav Moshe Nachman, wrote two books. One book was a book answering all the challenges of Rav Zerachia HaLevi, called Sefer Mukhamot, the book of wars, literally, um, challenging the Sefer Hamar, the book of Rav Zrachia HaLevi, answering all of his challenges on Rav Yitzhak Kalfasi's work. And then he wrote another book of um, answering the challenges of the other great scholar, um, the raivin Rav Avram ben David, um, answering his challenges on Rav Yitzhak Kalfasi. He then wrote his own book Challenging the uh, one of the works of Maimonides, the Ram, the Rambam. Maimonides had passed a couple decades, um, or a little bit before um, Rav Moshe Ben Nachman was born. Maimonides had been born in Cordova. He fled when the Almohads captured Cordova as a young, as a young, as a young man, and he ended up. He traveled first to North Africa and ended up eventually in Egypt. So. Um, Maimonides had written many important works. We did a class previously on Maimonides. One of the important works of Maimonides is Sefer Hamitzvot, the Book of the Commandments. The Talmud tells us that there are 613 commandments, 248 positive commandments, things that you should do, and 365 negative commandments, things that you should not do, do not. But it doesn't tell tell us what they are. It just gives us the total. But how do you know what they are? Well, the commandments are all found in the Torah. But how do you find 613 commandments in the Torah? What do you count as two commandments? What do you count as one commandment? What is counted as individual commandments? What is counted as a single one? How do you count them? You have to put on two pairs of tefillin. One on your head, one in your arm. Is that one or two? So that led to a whole, what we could call a genre or field of Jewish thought um, on counting the commandments. It's called Monei HaMitzvot, to count the commandments, to figure out how to get to the number 613. So Maimonides wrote a book called Sefer HaMitzvot, the Book of Commandments, where he wrote his calculation of what the 613 commandments are. First he puts together rules as to what counts as a commandment and what doesn't. Um, And then he lists the 613 commandments. Ramban wrote a book called Hasagot, um, challenges to Maimonides' list of commandments. Um, He disagreed with his list of commandments. He also wrote his own commentary on the Talmud, very important commentary on the Talmud. Um, He also wrote many, many letters of Jewish law, which are um, uh, to various communities, which were later collected and published in a book called Chuvot, a response of the Ramban. Um, He also wrote books of laws. He wrote a book of law dealing with healing and death and burial. He put a section over there about Gan Eden the garden of Eden the world to come, what happens, and resurrection, what happens after we die, will we come back? So he has a whole section over there about that very important part of um, Judaism that isn't discussed um, by too many of his predecessors in great detail. He also wrote many inspirational essays, mostly coming from speeches that he gave over the years, um, and so they've, they've been collected together um, in a book called Drashot Haran, the um, speeches of the uh, Ramban, the speeches of the Ramban. Perhaps his most famous work, though, is his commentary on the Torah. He wrote a very extensive commentary on the Torah. It is probably the most po- prominent commentary on the Torah after the commentary of Rashi. Um, Rashi, of course, <coughs> is the most important and prominent commentary on the Torah, but Ramosha Moshe bar Nachman wrote commentary on the Torah as well. He was also, as we mentioned, a great Kabbalist, he includes Kabbalah in his commentary on the Torah, and he also authored a number of works in Kabbalah. Uh, Rabbi, I have a question: is, hmm. is, um, what, is his works at our disposal written in plain English? Are his works at our disposal? That's a very good question. As far as I know, um, his his work on the Torah is translated. Um, there's a number of translations. I know Arts Girl has a translation of his book on the Torah, his commentary on the Torah. I believe there are multiple translations. I'm sure you could buy them on Amazon. But Arts Girl Publishers definitely has one. Um, his drashot, his speeches, the book of his speeches, drashot haramban, um, I believe are translated as well. He also wrote an ethical will, which was common for Jews to write, where they would write kind of instructions to their children how they should live. Values they should follow. So he wrote an ethical will to his children at the end of his life um, telling him how to be a good person. And um, that's also available definitely in uh, translated into English. His works, of course, were all in Hebrew. His original. <laughs> but these, yeah, those are all in English. Um, his commentaries on the Talmud I don't think have been translated. So now in the 13th century when the Ramban lived, it was a time of There were many great Kabbalists living in Spain at the time. Spain was in a center of Kabbalah study, the study of Jewish mysticism. Jewish mysticism had really been studied throughout Jewish history, uh, but it had mostly been studied by individuals, in small groups. It wasn't really something that was publicly available. There was no printing. The books of Kabbalah were not widely dispersed or widely copied. But what would happen is and even many scholars in Judaism, did not, many rabbis, did not, had not studied Kabbalah. It was only a select few teachers would handpick their students who they would want to teach Kabbalah to and it was taught just to those people that they taught it on to the next generation. There were just a select few that studied um, in each community. Uh, there were many Kabbalists in the, in the 13th century <coughs> in Spain at the time. The Ramban learned Kabbalah from a great Kabbalist in Barcelona in his day called Rabbeinu Azariah, as well as he had a brother, Rabbeinu Azriel. Um, It seems also that Ramban's teacher, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Yaker, was also somewhat of a Kabbalist himself, although we're not sure if he studied Kabbalah from him. There's actually a very interesting story told as to how Ramban started Kabbalah. Originally, Rabbi Azariah, who was a great rabbi in Barcelona, and a great Kabbalist, approached Ramban, who was a scholar, a young scholar, um, that he wanted him to join his Kabbalah group and study Kabbalah with him. He wanted to teach him Kabbalah. The Ramban refused. He wasn't interested. He was busy with his other studies. At the time, he was not interested in studying Kabbalah. So the story goes as follows. One time, Rabbi Azaria was walking past What we would call today a red light district. And as he happened to be walking past, there was a raid. There was a police raid, and they arrested all the people that were there in the building or in the area. And he happened to be in the area at the time, and he got arrested with everyone else. Because they had caught a Jew and a rabbi on top of it in the trap. Uh, in they let all the Christians go, and they decided to just prosecute the Jew. They fabricated evidence. They found him guilty, as was common in Christian Europe at the time. They found him guilty of running a um, of running a prostitution ring, and they condemned him to be burned at stake. This is a story. A story, or a true story? Is it a true <laughs> story? So, I know it's fact. <laughs> so Ramban, who was a prominent young scholar at the time, came to visit Rabbi Hazaria, a very prominent rabbi in Barcelona. Um, in prison, he got permission to visit him. In prison, he came to visit him, and um, apparently, he was his. He had studied under him um, before he studied Kabbalah with him. He had studied other parts of Torah with him. And um, Rabban came to visit him, and Rabbi Azariah, and he was, of course, very distraught that he was going to be burned alive, which was common punishment in Christian Europe at the time, and uh, Rabbi Azariah told him, don't worry, set a seat for me at your Shabbat (coughs) table this week. He was meant to be burnt, I forgot to mention, on Shabbat, on Saturday. He said, set a a seat for me at your Shabbat table, I'm going to join you for lunch on Shabbat. And so um, Ramban, he didn't know what to say because he knew that he was condemned to be burned at stake. He was locked in prison. But he did so. And as he stood up on Shabbat to make Kiddush, to do the Kiddush, um, he hears a knock on the door. He opens the door and there is his teacher, Rabbi Azariah, is there at the door. He invites him in. He says, I thought you were going to be burned. What happened? So he tells him as follows. He said that he is with his knowledge of Kabbalah, he was able to take a donkey and make that donkey look like him. And the donkey ended up getting burned and he was able to escape. <laughs> but then he told, then he told this, his student, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, the reason why this happened to me, the reason why I got caught and I went through all this suffering And I was able to miraculously escape was because God wanted me to show you the power of Kabbalah in order to convince you to study Kabbalah with me. And so with that, the Ramban began to study Kabbalah and became a great, great Kabbalist, um, one of the greatest Kabbalists of his day, and we could say one of the greatest Kabbalists of all time. Now, the Ramban's life story um, the Ramban then got involved in another um, major event that shook the Jewish world in the mid-1200s. And this was Maimonides, as we mentioned, had been one of the most prominent, the Rambam had been one of the most prominent Jewish scholars of all times. His most famous work was Mishneh Torah, um, a book of... Um, literally the second Torah, a book of Jewish law, a kind of encyclopedia of Jewish law, still one of the most important works of Jewish law today. Um, And he wrote, uh, and his works were widely received across the Jewish world. Um, And he also wrote, though, other works. Among the works that he wrote was a book called Moreh Nebuchim, Guide to the Perplexed, which is a book of philosophy, of Jewish philosophy. And it's one of the most important books of Jewish philosophy today. And in this book, Guide to the Perplexed, it's a somewhat difficult book of Jewish philosophy. He takes what's called a rationalist approach to Judaism, um, explaining many of the commandments in a rationalist way. Um, he leans very heavily on Aristot- Aristotelian um, philosophy, the Aristotelian field of philosophy, um, somewhat creating a merger between traditional Jewish philosophy and Aristotle and Greek philosophy in his work, Guides to the Perplexed. Now, the Rambam, in his day, he lived in Egypt, which was somewhat far, most of his life in Egypt, somewhat far from the Jewish centers, which were in North Africa, in Spain, in Western Europe. Um, That's where most Jews at the time lived. He lived, there was a sizable Jewish community in Egypt, but it was somewhat far and yet he corresponded with Jews across the world. Um, There was still trade across the Mediterranean, and he corresponded with other Jewish communities, and his works were spread across various Jewish communities. But his works were particularly influential in Provence. Provence, as we said, was southern France, was its own country, southern France, and a very, very large, um, successful Jewish community with many great scholars and yeshivas spread throughout southern France, throughout Provence, and Maimonides was in touch with many scholars in Provence, and he was extremely influential um, in Provence. Now there was, um, now in the days, fast forward now, um, the, the Maimonides died in the mid-1200s, the, uh, sorry, in the mid, uh, sorry, in the, Maimonides died in the um, mid-1100s. Um, this is, or late 1100s, this is a um, little bit after Maimonides, um, in the mid-1200s. There was a rabbi, the rabbi of Montpile, which is a big city still in southern France, um, was Rabbi Shlomo, he was called Rabbi Shlomo Min-Hahar. Min-hahar is from the mountain, or Hebrew from Montpile. So, Rabbi Shlomo of Montpellier was the rabbi there and he disliked or he believed that the rationalist Maimonides' rationalist approach to Judaism and his Aristotelian uh, 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 do, adoption of Aristotelian philosophy in his Guide to the Perplexed was wrong and was not just mistaken but was heretical went against basic Jewish beliefs and because of that Rabbi Shlomo banned the book Guides the Perplexed. Declared it outside of normative Judaism. It is a heretical book and nobody should study that book Guides the Perplexed. He also banned certain parts of, some other, of other works of Maimonides saying that they were misguided, they were mistaken, and they were outside of normative Judaism. Um, together with his two students, Rabbi Nuyona, who was a first cousin, actually, of the Ramban, as well as Rabbi David ben Shaul, with two of his prominent students and members of his court in Montpellier, and they banned the book, Guide to the Perplexed." Now, Maimonides had been very, very influential in Provence and was highly, highly respected in Provence. When other rabbis across Provence heard <coughs> that Rabbi Shlomo had disrespected Maimonides by banning his book, they were very very upset and they wrote very sharp letters to him to retract and when he refused to do so they decided they to band together a number of rabbis from various prominent communities in La- uh, and um, and um, <coughs> and narbonne and a number of other rabbis from prominent communities in southern in provence in southern france And they excommunicated Rabbi Shlomo and his students for having the audacity to ban the books of Maimonides. The book of Maimonides. So Rabbi Shlomo was not going to give in so easily. He reached out to the rabbis in northern France, which was then another country, but there was a lot of communication back and forth. The rabbis in northern France were the Baalei HaTosvot, They were um, from the Tosvot schools in northern France, which had a very, very large Jewish community at the time, very prominent, very great schools. And over there, they were a lot further away from the Muslim world, and um, Muslim philosophy had not really reached northern France, it was not really prominent in northern France, and they generally did not study philosophy or encourage the study of Jewish philosophy. And so when he sent to them that he had banned the book of the Guide to the Perplexed, Mare Um Rabbi Shlomo sent a message to them and told them what happened, how he had been excommunicated. They supported him. <coughs> and the, the French rabbis supported Rabbi Shlomo in um, banning the book, the Guide to the Perplexed, the of Nebuchim. And so this now turned into a whole Jewish debate with the Jewish communities now split, Jewish communities that banned the Guide to the Perplexed Jewish communities that felt it was an affront to the greatest Jew, one of the greatest Jewish scholars, Maimonides, to ban his book. Um, how can you say that about Maimonides? And so there was this huge debate. So who's going to resolve this big debate? It was um, tearing apart Jewish communities, and so both sides turned to the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, most prominent rabbi in Spain at the time, and one of the most prominent rabbis in the world at the time. And so the Ramban made a very st- wrote many letters and made a strong effort to try to make peace on both sides. And he kind of took a balanced approach. Firstly, he himself had been a very, very strong student of Maimonides and wrote that Maimonides' teachings are definitely in line with traditional Judaism and they're not outside of Jewish norms and so therefore they should, be, they should not be banned They should be studied, um, and they're just fine. It was a mistake to ban the work of Maimonides. The people who did, didn't understand Jewish philosophy, um, and it definitely is a grave error. On the other hand, he also responded to those who tried to excommunicate the banners, that those that did ban Maimonides, including his own cousin, Rabbein Oyona, was one of them, had meant well. It was done in good faith. They didn't mean bad. You shouldn't excommunicate them for it. You should um, accept them, and um, everybody should make peace. It's all done in good faith. Nobody um, meant bad, and therefore and he worked hard, and he managed to quieten down the debate and make peace between everyone. So the Ramban, from what I've described from you for you till now, was a great scholar, and we spoke a lot about his scholarship, one of the greatest Jewish scholars of all time, Um, with a wealth of knowledge across every section of Jewish scholarship and secular scholarship at the time, widely respected in Spain and beyond as the greatest Jewish scholar of his day, Um, influential to be able to make peace when there's a big raging debate within the Jewish world. But his personal life was pretty uneventful. Nothing really happened. He lived in Gerona. He studied in Barcelona as a young man, which is not far from Gerona. And then he became a rabbi in Gerona, built a yeshiva, and lived his whole life peacefully in Gerona. He was the most prominent rabbi in Aragon and in Spain at the time. Um, As such, he developed a close relationship with King James of Aragon, um, who was the king at the time, and many of the... um, civil leadership, because he, as the leader of the Jewish community, the de facto leader of the Jewish community in Aragon, um, he uh, represented the Jewish community to the um, king, to the kingdom, and so he built a good, very good relationship with them. King James w- um, was fairly tolerant to Jews um, and had a fairly close relationship with the Ramban, and um, his life was pretty uneventful for most of his life. Until twelve thirty, until um, until twelve sixty three, he's almost seventy years old. He's lived, lived mostly a peaceful, quiet life for most of his, most of his life, leading the Jewish community in a fairly quiet time for Jews in Spain and across Europe. In twelve sixty three, the Christian, the Catholic Church. Um, already from the Middle Ages had various orders, um, various um, groups of um, monasteries and um, they were, they're called orders of the Catholic Church. And um, in Aragon and in Spain, the most prominent one at the time, um, and maybe even still till today, was the Dominican order. And so there was, and they were very, very influential, had a lot of influential with the crown and the court um, through, in the, throughout the church. And so Um, And the the Dominican order, in general, was very, very anti-Semitic. In fact, most of the anti-Semitism in Spain, in the 1300s, 1400s, eventually the expulsion of Jews from Spain, can be traced to the Dominican order, which was highly, highly anti-Semitic. And so the Dominicans were always looking for ways to get the Jews. And ways to convince the kingdom to limit the Jews' rights or to try to convert the Jews was really their main goal. So there was a Jew who converted to Christianity and joined the Dominican order. We call it in Yiddish a Meshumut, a Jew who converts to Christianity. And often they were the worst, right? The self-hating Jews were the worst. So this fellow, who now went by a Christian name, Pablo Cristani, Convinced, told the, convinced the king that he could debate the Ramban, the most prominent Jew of his day, and if he would debate the Ramban, he would win the debate, and he would that way convince all the Jews of Spain to convert to Christianity. At first, the king hesitated, but they pressured him and pressured him, and finally the king, the king agreed to order a debate between the leaders of the Dominican order led by Pablo Cristi- Cristani and the Ramba. The Ramban didn't want to do it, he, but he did, wasn't really given a choice, so he agreed, he agreed, he didn't really have a choice, he was forced to debate the, these Dominicans and Pablo. He did insist, though, he would only take part in the debate if he was given complete freedom of speech. One of the problems with the um, with d- Jews debating Christians, and there were dozens, if not hundreds, of such forced debates um, in medieval Europe. One of the problems is it was similar to the witch trials, right? Witch um, trials, right? Or what happened um, in uh, what happened in witch trials? What did they used to do to you, right? They used to put them um, in some dangerous situation. Put them in a barrel in a river, in a fast flowing river or something, and then if you survived, you were a witch and would get killed. And if you didn't survive, then maybe you weren't. So, um, so with these Christian debates, there was a, it was kind of a similar catch-22, where if you lose the debate, then you lose and you're forced to convert to Christianity. If you win, then you've insulted Christianity and you get killed for blasphemy. So, it's a no-win situation. So, so Ramban agreed to debate only on condition he's given total freedom of speech, he could say whatever he wants, and he will not be tried for blasphemy if, if he insults Christianity. He's given the freedom to insult Christianity at will at the debate. And so the king, who was fairly tolerant and somewhat pressured into this debate, agreed that he would not prosecute the Ramban for anything he said at the debate. So this debate of the Ramban is, there were, as we said, dozens if not hundreds of such debates in Christian Europe, but this is definitely the most famous of such (coughs) debates. We actually, about two years ago, did a class just on the debate of the Ramban. Uh, We did a class on it. It's on our podcast, and if you want to learn more about the debate, I encourage you to listen to it. Um, so, but anyway, they spent four days of the debate of debating um, back and forth, and in that class, it went through various details of the debate. They went through four days of debating back and forth, some in public, some in private, um, and at the end, the king ruled that the Ramban had successfully won the debate. After the debate, the Ramban went back to Gerona, back to his community. However, The Dominicans then published accounts of the debate, false accounts of the debate, which sounded like the Ramban was unable to answer many of their challenges, and um, they had proven that um, Christianity is true, and the Jews were mistaken in not accepting Christianity. And so given that there were these false accounts going around about the debate, The Ramban countered that with his own account of the debate. He published in a book called Sefer Habikuach, the book of the debate. Now, King James had given the Ramban freedom of speech at the debate. But he didn't give him freedom of speech to publish a book after the debate. So the Dominicans now turn to the king and say, look, this book is full of blasphemy. He's insulting Christianity in the book, and your permission didn't extend to writing a book after the debate. And so as a result, um, in 1264, the Ramban was forced to leave Aragon. He was expelled from Aragon for the pun, the king wasn't going to didn't want to greatly respect the Ramban, did not want to harm him, and so instead he expelled him from Spain um, and forced him to leave at the age he was 70 years old at the time, an older man. He was forced to leave Spain. Being forced to leave Spain, he gave a speech, which we have recorded among his various speeches in the Shul in Aragon, Um, on the Rosh Hashanah of that year that he's leaving Spain, he's forced to leave he was given a deadline by when he had to leave Spain and he was going to but it was actually an opportunity for him because it's a great mitzvah to go to the land of Israel and he will go live the last of his days in the land of Israel and he spoke in that speech about the importance the greatness of Israel and the importance of um, going to Israel, visiting Israel and living for a Jew to live in Israel. And so in 1264 he leaves Aragon um, It took him three years, we don't know the exact route or where he stopped, but it took him three years until he finally arrived in Israel in 1267. He's over 70 years old at the time. At that time he made it to Jerusalem. Um, Israel was now, um, Israel had gone through many battles, many wars. It had gone through the wars of the Crusaders, had lasted for some 200 years. There were Battles, um, the um, Mongols had captured Jerusalem at one point. Um, the, and as Christians and Muslims captured Jerusalem, they each killed each other. The Christians killed all the Muslims. The Muslims killed all the Christians. Um, they both killed all the Jews. Um, and then the Mongols killed the Mo- Christians, Muslims, and the Jews. Um, and so at this time, it was under Turkic rule when the Ramban came. But Jerusalem was a desolate city. He describes that in his letters that he came to Jerusalem, there were only two Jews living in Jerusalem at the time. Only two Jews living in Jerusalem at the time. There were only 3,000 families in Jerusalem, 3,000 households, It had turned into a very small town. Most of the buildings were abandoned um, over the many, many years of war, um, and the the city had really fallen into disrepair. And so he sets about building a Jewish community in Jerusalem. Jews began to move to Jerusalem now that the Ramban was there. He found an abandoned big building with a beautiful dome on top and he built a, um, he built it into a synagogue and he found the community in Jerusalem and that community in Jerusalem really had continuous presence. After the 1200s, um, Israel was a lot more uh, there, were, there, were, there weren't too many wars in Israel. There were some, but not a lot, a lot less. Um, and it was a lot safer to live there. And the community in Jerusalem really continued um, on a permanent basis since he started it in the late 1200s. Um, he, uh, he spent some time in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly how long. He spent a couple of years in Jerusalem with the community over there. At a certain point, he left Jerusalem. We don't know why. And he moved to Akko, Akko, which is a town just north of Haifa. At the time, it's an ancient town. Um, goes back to biblical times. But at the time, it was the largest and most prominent city in Israel. Um, it was the safest city. It was surrounded by very big walls. It's famous for its wall in the sea. It has a wall in the water. Um, and um, it, was, um, it, it was a safe city. It was also a very large city. There was a large Jewish community at the time. Um, Jews... Um, had, who were persecuted in France um, had left in large numbers and Rabbi Yechiel of Paris Paris um, had moved with his whole yeshiva to Echo at the time and so he comes to Echo. Uh, but he writes back to Spain a number of letters to his family um, he writes about life in Israel he writes an ethical will to his son um, to his son Nachman who's still in Gerona and so we have many of those letters um, of uh, of the Ramban where he writes about the land of Israel and his life in the land of Israel. He also, when he comes to Israel, he had written an extensive commentary on the Torah, one of the most famous commentaries on the Torah. But when he came to, he had never, he had written the book on the Torah without having ever visited Israel. Like Rashi before him and many other commentaries had written without ever having visited Israel. They didn't have good maps at the time. You couldn't go to the store and buy a map of Israel, right? You couldn't... Um, You couldn't go on, they definitely didn't have Google Maps. And so their maps were based on their reading the text. They kind of figured where everything was. Uh, But he had never actually seen it. Now, living in Israel, he actually went back and edited and updated a number of things in his commentary where he writes, now that I'm in Israel, I see that it's not the way I thought it was. It's actually a little bit different because right? he actually could see where each place was, where the various towns were, right, where things were. He could see the geography. So he makes some geographical corrections to his commentary at the end of his life, living in the land of Israel. So the Ramban is one of our greatest Jewish scholars. Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman of all time uh, wrote many, many works that impacted us. Uh, uh, most important, his commentary on the um, Torah. He also recreated the Jewish community in Jerusalem. His synagogue was destroyed and rebuilt multiple times, but there is still the synagogue of the Ramban in the old city in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem, still stands there today. That is the synagogue that he built. We don't know exactly where he was buried, um, uh, possibly in Tiberias. Um, We don't know exactly when he died. Um, Communication with Israel, we have a number of letters from him, but communication was sporadic back then. It wasn't great. Um, communication with the land of Israel, um, with the rest, with Jews in Europe. So we don't have great records of exactly what happened to him after he went to Israel, uh, but he definitely died over there. Uh, But he made a great impact on Jewish life, on Jewish history, on Jewish scholarship. And therefore, we spent the last hour talking about him.